great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you have. Our websites are Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. And I was on one of our meetings about the websites the other day, and one of the things that came up was that our traffic at ClarkDeals.com skyrocketed in the month of May. And I was like, huh, what's that all about? And it turns out that it was just a reflection of a national trend that in the initial shock of coronavirus spreading around the United States the second half of March and through the month of April and a lot of communities had tight to loose restrictions, People just weren't shopping, and anything people were buying was basically just food. I shared with you recently that the savings rate, the amount that people of every dollar they had coming in that they were saving, had gone to records we haven't seen, levels we haven't seen in many, many decades in the United States. I think the last time was in the late 1940s that Americans saved a third of what they made in the month of April. I mean, that's an unbelievable number. And it's a reflection of people not really having anything that they were interested in buying. And in places where people were tightly locked down, they couldn't go buy anything anyway. So there's been a rebound effect that's been fantastic for retailers. In the month of May, retail sales went way up from where they'd been in April and May. And this is something that you'll hear me talk about to try to give you frame of reference on various things involved with what's happened with the economy this spring and will continue in the summer, is that because there was not an underlying financial reason or business reason for us going into a sudden deep decline in economic activity in the United States and around the world. It was because of a health event that the ability to recover is much easier in this case in spite of what is such a brutal drop-off in such a short period of time. And so the retail sales coming back quite a bit is a very positive indicator that that is true. Now, unfortunately, Retail sales are still down, even with the wonderful May numbers and what's a rebound from what had happened in March and April. The sales are still down from a year ago because there are a number of factors at work. You have very high unemployment and a real question mark concerning people's wallets and why it's good to hold money closer is that As things stand now, the end of next month, the special federal enhancements for unemployment end. And there seems to be no desire in the U.S. Senate to have any kind of extension of enhanced unemployment benefits. There may be some kind of reduced federal program going forward for August and after August, But it's very unknown at this time. So part of what has propped up spending in the month of May 
is that depending on which economist estimate you believe, between 53 and 68 percent of people who are unemployed have been making more on unemployment compensation than they made on their job before they were laid off. And that's because on top of the state unemployment in many states is pretty puny, the $600 a week federal supplement that is a 16 or 17 week deal, that boosted many people's incomes higher not working than people were making working. So that's going to end next month. And no matter what Congress does, there will not be unemployment of compensation of such a level as we have right now. So be careful with your money. It's great that people have been saving more. I completely understand why people opened up the wallets after such strict control on spending in March and April. And this is not something that we will, even though we will have a significant partial recovery from the economic damage from coronavirus, the full recovery is going to take a good while. And we have to be prepared for that fact. Then you look at who's doing really well in retail. It's people that sell overwhelmingly practical items, things that we really need, people who sell things we want. Uh, it's still going to be a tough road for them. It's time for your questions. Producers Kim and Joel asking questions you posted at clark.com slash ask. And Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Sandy in Ohio. And Sandy says, Clark, what's your take on cryptocurrency and do you think it will be the future of currency? We invested about 2000 in one in particular, and that's not enough money for us to be dangerous if we lose, but a good return could come of it, so we're told, if it was to go up in value. Thank you so much. Two extra O's. Love you and love your show. Thank you very much. So you're not going to like what I have to say about cryptos. Having um, a form of electronic money that makes it much easier for funds to move around the world in a global economy is really the ultimate benefit of having what we now call cryptocurrency, but it's not necessarily even related to a tradable currency. It's about uh, what's known as an electronic ledger. And cryptocurrencies have not turned out to be real money because real money stays stable in value and is easily usable to buy and sell goods and services. No cryptocurrency has been able to successfully do that. And any cryptocurrency that, as they all have, moves wildly up and down is not an investment. It's a speculative play. It's kind of like gambling. And there's been a lot of fraud with these things. And in addition, uh, even with the most established of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, there have been these just hideous crimes where criminals have figured out how to tap in to the accounts of people who ha have Bitcoin and steal all their Bitcoin and convert it to a real currency. And they're off and gone and your money is gone forever. So the fact that you have $2,000 in this 
that's fine if it's money that you can lose, as you said, and it's not going to mean anything to you. Know that this is a gambling activity, in my opinion, not a real business activity. Joel? Clark Lanita in Illinois says, my credit card company keeps raising my limit, which I know can be a good thing, but I want to make sure I'm not setting myself up for debt. Should I ask them to stop raising my limit? I use this card for pretty much everything as it's a travel card that you recommended in order to score the points. So Lanita, this is very ironic because the big thing going on right now across America is banks slashing people's credit limits with no notice or shutting their cards off with no notice as the banks become afraid that a lot of people suffering from unemployment or potential unemployment will default on their debts. So you being offered a credit limit increase is fantastic for your credit score. The more your limits raised, as long as you don't raise your spending, the better it is. Now, what worried me about what you said in your question is it sounds like maybe as they raise your limit you're tempted to spend more money and look closely at what you're doing with your activity and basically set a cap for yourself what you spend on that card in a month so you don't get out of hand with it but as long as you can do that having a limit increase is good for you definitely with how you look to other lenders and how your overall credit profile looks. Kim? Jeffrey in Illinois says, like most city dwellers, I don't own a car and therefore I don't have auto insurance. When I rent a car for business or leisure, I do have liability and collision coverage through my employer, but that's only for two of the major rental companies. If I ever rent from a different car company, which is usually cheaper than the two majors, I don't have any coverage. Any suggestions? Oh, yeah. You're making me nervous even with the employer overlay with the two companies. This is, I know this is going to sound weird, but there is non-owner auto insurance you can buy from, I'd say, a majority of auto insurers where you own a policy that protects you for temporary use of a vehicle even though you're not a vehicle owner. And non-owner insurance is generally not uh, frightfully expensive because the number of days a year that you may operate a motor vehicle may be quite low. Um, the other possibility is one that I've n I reluctantly mentioned, but I will. You can potentially buy from one of the travel insurance sellers an overarching policy for renting vehicles that you can buy on potentially an annual basis, but I'm much happier if you buy a non-owner auto insurance policy so that you do have that protection regardless of who or in what situation you're renting a vehicle. It's too much liability exposure to you otherwise. Joel? Clark, Amanda in Ohio says, I want to start some sort of saving account for my new grandson. I have about $100 a month in order to do that. I'm not finding any options out there that aren't educational based, though. I want him to be able to use the money for anything after he turns 21. I'm not sure if I need to save up a larger amount of money to invest it first or if there's something I can do on a monthly basis with the amount I have. Any ideas or suggestions would be helpful. Sure. You can go to one of the discount brokers like Schwab or Fidelity 
open a um, custodial account where you're the custodian for your grandchild till they reach adulthood and invest the money in a just straight, simple, total stock market index fund or broad market index fund who have very favorable tax treatment over the years, and then the money will flow to your grandchild at adulthood, and it can be used at that point for any purpose. It will be taxed, though. Tina's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Tina. Hey, Clark. Thank you for everything you and your team are doing, and thank you for taking my call. Certainly, Tina. I hope I can serve you well. So I had um, took your advice, and I was shopping for some auto insurance. It's been a while since I had done that. And before I did, I thought I would go ahead and do as you had on one of your pages had said that we could order our clue report and for free, which I did. Um, I did see two things on there that I didn't realize would be on there. Um, the first, um, my daughter had a boyfriend in college, and she let him drive her car, and the car was totaled. Uh, the car was in my name, um, so um, I knew the car was totaled. I did not realize the points would be attached to me because I was the owner. And then the other, my daughter let someone else drive her car, and they got a ticket for changing lanes. Your and daughter is no just way to... too generous with your vehicles. <laughs> yes. We've changed that. She has her own in her own name now. <laughs> so um, I agree. But um, no points were on that second one, but it was still you know, still showing up under my clue report. Now, these were both incidents were more than three years ago, so I don't think it's going to impact my rate. But should I try to dispute these or... No, they're real. I mean, they actually, they actually happened. And, you know, because these happened in a vehicle that was your vehicle, that's why they follow you. And that's why insurance agents will always say, you know, don't let other people drive your vehicle because it's going to follow you. Okay. I was afraid of that. <laughs> So, sorry to tell you that, but um, the fact that they are older means they may not really affect you. Uh, I'm very impressed that you went through all the steps and you got your clue report because most people don't know this even exists. There's a clue report on your driving, and then there's a clue report on your home. And uh, that can always be a shock for a home buyer. Have you ever heard what happens to home buyers because of clue reports? No. So let's say there's a home that had a major claim on it, and you had nothing to do with that claim. You bought the home later. Well, you buy the home, and insurers may not want to write homeowner's insurance for you or may charge you a lot more money because of something that happened with the home when you had nothing to do with that home. Oh, wow. But that's how the system well, works. So LexisNexis owns the Clue Report stuff now, and it's hard to get to the actual link to see your reports. So you click to it through one of our links, I guess. And if you, yes, I if, did. if you go through Clark.com, you can get to where you can see your Clue Reports or you can just uh, put in your search bar for Google or whatever search engine you use, Clue Report, and you'll eventually come to one of the links where you can click and see your Clue Report, which was so smart for you to do. 
But as you, you so shop, much, as you shop around for insurance, it will depend on the insurer if those past incidents affect you at all. Okay, thank you so much for your advice. Sure, and you know what will be interesting about that is you'll see a larger-than-normal gap in what different insurers charge you in how they treat that history. And parents, make sure your kids know not to let a friend drive your car. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. And one thing that economists are marveling at is how many small businesses have been able to hang on. You know, surveys prior to the advent of this recession found that overwhelmingly small business owners self-reported that their reserves were so low that a big chunk of small businesses said that if they had no revenue coming in for 15 days, they would cease to exist. Well, there have been businesses that have, in fact, failed through this process. People have closed their doors. There are businesses that have multiple locations that have reduced the number of locations of stores or restaurants they have. But overwhelmingly, it has been a really positive surprise how many small businesses have survived an historical drop in revenue that's occurred in March, April, May, and June. But businesses are now running on fumes in a lot of cases. We have been through the star-crossed changes repeatedly with the SBA PPP loan, the Payroll Protection Program, um, and the Payroll Protection Program the new regulations, the latest, I saw a number recently. It was unreal. I think there had been 45 different series of rules and guidances issued. I mean, how is a small business, are you ever going to figure it out? So apparently the newest is coming very soon, and there is still money available for that. But the other program that Congress modified because of coronavirus ran out of money and basically shut down and now has reopened. It's the IDLE, which is the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Grant and Loan Program. So the way it works, first of all, for people that are ICs, freelancers, and gig workers, you can get a $1,000 grant that you don't have to pay back. It's, it's just straight-out money. And small businesses that have employees are eligible for a grand per headcount up to 10 grand as a grant that is just forgiven. It's it's not a loan, it's a grant. They just send you the money. And that is a great way for you to have some cash flow for your business to be able to apply for the EIDL, again, the E-I-D-L, that you can see how it works at sba.gov. The other thing is that the SBA EIDL loans, which are different than how the PPP loans work, are available once again 
for how long, don't know how much money there is, but they have very, very low interest rates on these loans as well. And the loan amounts are still kind of up in the air on how much you're going to be able to borrow. Um, at one time, it was $2 million. Then it was basically zero. Then it was 150000 So who knows how exactly that's going to play. But the good news, the idle, different than the PPP, you apply directly with the SBA. So you don't have to find a lender who will process your loan application and where there was really no processing going on before at the SBA. Now things have settled down and this is a loan you can apply for. If I remember correctly, the rate is 3.75% for small businesses, which is a very favorable borrowing rate, very different than what normally you would see. There's even a special phone number you can call at the SBA if you can reach someone. And I, I will uh, make sure that you know, once again, if you go to sba.gov and click on the idle, you will see all the details about how to get assistance from the SBA, hopefully being able to reach someone and being able to apply for the grant, and if you want it also, the loan. And it's time for your questions you posted at clark.com slash ask. Who's up? It's me, and this is from Elaine in Florida. She says, I have purchased season tickets for Gator football. What do you think the chances are that there will actually be fans in the stands? And if there are, and it's limited, who gets to decide who gets to go since there's way too many season ticket holders to be able to social distance properly? Sure. Now, the Gators play in the SEC, which is basically like AAA baseball compared to the big. So uh, the SEC has huge television revenue. And so the Southeastern Conference will play a football schedule this year with uh, virtually total certainty, even if there's no fans in the stands or greatly reduced uh, number of fans in the stands. So as to what they're going to do, teams have no idea right now and no college football conference has a clear plan yet what they're going to do. There's a lot of proposals being bandied about as to how to handle um, having any attendance at games this fall and college football fans in the SEC and the Big Ten in particular are rabid and want to be in the stands. Unfortunately, it just may not be safe because one of the greatest risk level activities is having people who are strangers in close contact for a 15 minute or longer period, which obviously would be the case in the stands. So we're going to have to wait and see what the conferences do decide. As for your money, what I, I can predict the future, that the teams will try, like the Gators, will try to get you to roll the money you've already paid for your season tickets into 2021 season tickets. 
instead of requesting a refund. But as we've seen with other things where organizations were reluctant to make refunds, people are going to want refunds in some number, and you should be able to get that. I doubt that they're going to want to alienate a loyal fan like yourself. You will almost certainly be offered the choice of either rolling forward or a refund. Joel? Clark Sandra in Wisconsin says, I recently received an ad on my Android phone for an app that claims to protect your personal info from hackers. What's your opinion on an app like this? It's only three bucks. Sounds like a steal. No pun intended. Uh, They claim it even checks the dark web to see if your information has been breached. It sounds too good to be true, Clark. What's your your take on this? Yeah, I'm not even going to name this particular app because people might think that uh, oh, Clark mentioned that. Did he say something good about that or bad? Better not to mention it. The reviews of it are generally very poor. And there's this thing that's hot right now about, we're going to protect you from the dark web. And it, it works really well in advertising. But in terms of how that plays in real life, it's not a very um, successful strategy. The dark web, just so you know, is generally uh, message boards where people trade in stolen information and buy and sell stolen credit card numbers, social security numbers, and other things like that. So I would not take the bait. I would not buy this app and know that security is an ever-moving target, but with anything like a banking app, credit card app, brokerage app, any of those things, please set up two-factor authentication with your email, set up two-factor authentication. It is not ironclad, but it's one of the best protections you can do to protect your information and your identity. Kim? Shauna in Georgia says, Hi, Clark. My aunt is in a nursing home, and she received a stimulus check but the nursing home deposited it into their account and won't give her the money. They said they have to monitor how she spends it, and I don't believe that's true. My mom, which is her sister, has been calling and calling, but they haven't gotten it figured out. Have you heard of such a thing? Oh, yeah. Multiple media reports are talking about nursing homes stealing people's stimulus checks. NBC News just did a story about it, among others. And I just did one in my TV work about the nursing home stealing people's money. They are not entitled to that money, and it is a crime for the nursing homes to steal your stimulus check unless you had some kind of written agreement or contract with the nursing home that gives them access to federal funds that you're receiving. And that is possible in some cases But generally, it is just a theft of your money. And I cannot imagine that nursing homes would think this is something they can just get away with. As to what changes this behavior, it's going to require action by the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to come down hard on the nursing home industry. And so far... HHS has been mute on this. Joel? Clark Wendy in Georgia says, my son will turn 19 at the beginning of next year. He has a secure credit card with the bank that he received mid last year. 
He currently has a 730 credit score after having this card for about a year. But I think it's time to get a real credit card now. Who should he apply to to get the best offers? Uh, He uses his card for food, gas, and school bills, and he pays it off at the end of every month. We just really want him to be able to build up good credit. That is fantastic. You have such an incredibly responsible teenager. And the secured card that he got may not be one of the good ones. Because typically with a legitimate secured card, after making on-time payments as you're you're supposed to for 6, 12, or at the outside 18 months, but usually 6 or 12 months, it automatically converts to a regular full-fledged Visa or MasterCard that his has not is very disturbing to me. So... With the score he has, he should go ahead and apply for another regular card. If he's not a member of a credit union, he should join one and consider getting a credit card from the credit union. And then once he's gotten that card, he will be free to can the secured card. And by the way, when he calls to try to can it, they may well offer him an unsecured card to replace it which is what should have happened already. And I'm so glad that the secured card worked as a bridge to real credit for him. But now that they haven't graduated him to a regular card is unacceptable. Grant's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Grant. Hi, Clark. Thanks for having me. Sure, Grant. You know, I have a son named after you, right? I do. I've actually listened to you for a couple of years now, so I'm a little biased, but that's a great name. It is a great name. (laughs) I was uh, looking in my escrow the other day because my mortgage company is actually, I believe the term will be sold to another one. And I always hear about you stating to just to do your due diligence and then make sure that everything moves over properly. And then I noticed hazard insurance. And my question to you would be, is this normal? And if so, how much should it be costing me? So hazard insurance is people use the term interchangeably with mm-hmm. homeowner's insurance, but they can be different things because okay. hazard insurance often is referred to as dealing with the financial consequences of you having suffered a theft or the, the damage that could happen. Um, homeowner's mm-hmm. insurance is broader in terms of how people refer to it, but others will refer to um, hazard insurance as being one of the elements of a homeowner's right. insurance policy. So are you telling me that your uh, mortgage company is selling you hazard insurance in addition to you having your own homeowner's policy? Yes. Um, I believe my homeowner's uh, policy is about 900 a year and then i noticed that my hazard what they call hazard insurance that i saw on my escrow is 2300 a year so okay you uh, may I mean, be, you may be immediately all right so what may be happening is you may be accidentally hit with what's known as forced placed insurance okay and what that is is that's when a mortgage company makes a huge profit, I mean, massive profit, Mm -hmm. putting insurance on your bill that you don't want and don't need and is not required by your mortgage. 
Now, there are circumstances like if somebody doesn't, lets their homeowner's insurance lapse, as an example, then mm -hmm. under the mortgage, the lender is allowed to put this junk on you, this force-placed insurance. Also, if you had a deductible on your homeowner's insurance that was higher than the mortgage allowed, they might put on top of your mortgage the force-placed insurance. But it's a complete and total rip. But it also could be, the first thing, it could be just a mistake, hopefully it's a mistake, that they added right. this when they should not have. Yeah, and, and the tricky part here is they're transferring the mortgage. So <laughs> I, I even uh, tried to log into my account and, and and look into some of the details and even give them a call. And it's it's already saying that my balance has been paid in full. So that means I'm sure they've transferred it. Okay, so what you do in that case, see what's going on with the new mortgage lender. See if they're still okay. um, charging you for insurance that you don't want, don't need, didn't ask for. And then you immediately say, why, are, why am I being charged this? I don't want this. Then with the old lender, you file a complaint with at consumerfinance.gov. Okay. Again, that's consumerfinance.gov. And say that you were charged for insurance that you did not ask for and did not want by your now former mortgage lender. At the same time, you need to call them and say you discovered when your loan was being transferred that you were being charged for insurance you didn't ask for. Okay. And tell them at the same time that you have filed a complaint with the federal regulator already. Okay, I can definitely do that. I appreciate your help. And I'd love to hear back from you when you find out what the real story is. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.